Well, good morning again. Happy to be here. Uh, my family was not able to uh, come today. Uh, my wife works at North Kansas Hospital, and my kids are worshiping at uh, my home church today. So that means Laura, the baby, is not here today. I know that she fell asleep in the sermon last week, and some of you heard her snoring. But if I hear snoring today, you can't say it was Laura. So stay, stay away, pay attention. Um, today we are uh, going to go into a, a passage that uh, I, I, pr- I can almost safely bet you've never had preached before, which gives me uh, at least this small consolation that it will be the best sermon that you've ever heard on this passage, even if it's a terrible message. But uh, that's my encouragement. I'm going to go ahead, let's, let's read the text. We're in Numbers chapter 5. That's the uh, fourth book of the Bible. And uh, we're looking at verses 11 through 31. Uh, I'm going to skip a couple verses just to keep the, the thing as brief as possible because it is a bit detailed. But let's start with reading and then I'll start discussing it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, And she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. And the priest shall bring her near, and set her before the Lord, And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance. Then, in verse 19, the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But... If you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and with some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. If she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among the people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in the cases of jealousy. All right. That's our passage for today, and I think the only thing that's appropriate at this point is to pray. (laughs) Say what? All right. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you have brought us together today uh, to study your word, to worship your Son. Father, uh, you have given us this word. It is strange to our ears. Uh, It is... um, unfamiliar to us, and Father, I pray that you would just help us to, uh, to hear from it, to hear what it has to say, Father, to 
um, to believe that you have given this word uh, for us um, and that there is uh, something relevant for us to hear. I pray, Father, that you would just give me the ability to speak and to preach and to make this word clear. Father, help me to get out of the way that your spirit may work. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, with a text like that, I guess the first thing we can say is uh, Easter's over. Um, but uh, more importantly, I expect, as you heard that passage, you're, you're wondering why in the world I picked it. Uh, it's very strange. It sounds magical. It's maybe sexist. It seems very irrelevant, bizarre, Old Testament stuff. And I'm sympathetic with that reaction because I have carried that reaction for uh, quite a while. And it was only because I had to work through this text and part of my studies that I came to realize that there is something here that I think the church needs to hear. And I have to tell us that the text starts with these words, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is telling us that as bizarre and strange as this word is, it is the word of God. And all scripture has been given us to us uh, for our profit. So I think it is worth us going through it today and, and seeing what it has to teach us. The text deals with really a very important and relevant subject, the problem of secret sins in God's people. Now, a lot has changed between the time of this passage and today, but are secret sins still a problem? Our society would say otherwise. The world teaches us that the answer to our sins is to keep them secret, is to hide them, to deny them, to rationalize them, to redefine them, to explain them away, essentially to bury them from our sight. The world teaches us that the solution of our sins is to make them secret and private and unknown. And if somebody wants to ask us about our sins, the mantra of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is basically there to defend us. Who has any business, even God, has any business do it, dealing with what is in our private life? That is a, a, an idea that is catching hold in our society. In fact, you may have found a good deal of success with this approach. Lying protects your job. Perhaps hiding your sins preserves the harmony of your relationship with your wife. Hypocrisy makes fitting in at church easier, does it not? This way has worked for us, but we know better. We know better. We have seen pastor scandals. We have seen Christians exposed as liars and hypocrites, and the entire church suffers the shame and the embarrassment of these secret sins when they are brought into the open. I read an article uh, just this week about uh, the incidents that when a Christian conference comes to a city and, and a hotel is booked out by ministers and, and uh, pastors, that quite often that hotel will set a new record for adult film rentals. And this comes out. This is not a secret. And what an embarrassment. What a shameful thing upon the church. What a... What a, 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 a way to despise our Lord and Savior. We recognize that secret sins are a real issue. Now before we go much further, what do I mean when I talk about secret sin? Likely most of you jump to thoughts of sexual sins like pornography or adultery, and certainly those sins would be part of it. But I want us to think a little bit more broadly. Secret sins are anything that you want to keep from the view of Jesus. 
secret sins are anything that you want to hide rather than confess. They can be secret sins of the heart. They can be secret sins of the body. They are the sins that you cherish so much that you protect them with lies, rationalizations, and denials. They are the parts of your life, your thoughts, your heart, and your actions that you want God to have nothing to do with. These are the secret sins that I want us to address today. Our passage addresses the problem of secret sins. It is written to a people who have just received the law from God at Sinai. They have become in covenant relationship with a holy God. And they are about to depart and go on their mission of conquering the promised land. And this people is having to learn something that no other people has had to learn before them. How to share the camp with a holy God. A holy God is a blessing to the, to the people of Israel. It means that they have the one true God with them. They have fellowship with the creator of the universe. They have the Almighty with them in the campaign to take over the promised land. But having a holy God also means that there is no tolerance for sin in his presence. Holiness and sin is like light and darkness. The two cannot be brought together. And the light will overcome the darkness by judgment. The scriptures talk about God's holiness as something like a fire. Fire is something that gives us warmth. It gives us light. It it allows us to to cook our meals. It protects us from from, uh, outside forces. It is a good thing when we respect it. But if you bring something dry and flammable near it, it it will lash out at it and it will become out of control. The situation of sin in the camp of Israel is the equivalent of somebody dousing themselves in kerosene and dancing drunkenly around a fire. It is a dangerous situation and one that the entire community needs to deal with. And that is why this text brings up the issue of secret sins. Because this people are in covenant with a holy God and they are on a great mission. And as we think about that, are we not in the same situation We are also with a holy God who dwells among us by his Holy Spirit. We are also been given a great mission, which is to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We more than them need the fellowship and the presence and the empowering of God with us. And so as secret sin harmed that community, secret sin can all the more harm us. So is this issue important to us? If we desire deeper fellowship and greater effectiveness in our mission, then I believe dealing with secret sins in our midst must be a priority. Now, as we get into this passage, we do have to address a question that looms over it. Is this law sexist? It is very one-sided. It sounds very unfair. It only talks about the woman's situation. It doesn't say anything to the man. And so, to our ears, it sounds very backwards. But I think to judge this law fairly, we have to understand it in the context and in the situation in which it was written. In the world that this text was written, the husband had supreme authority over his wife. His wife could be divorced by simply writing a piece of paper and sending her away. The wife was punished by the husband. The wife was essentially treated as property of the husband. And we're not here to defend any of that. That is simply the way that marriage was conceived. And so when a charge of adultery was brought, the punishment for adultery was death. 
And so this woman is in a situation of great peril for her life. She's in a situation where she has absolutely no rights and no protections. Now we need to consider what this law does for that woman. This law takes that woman from the very dangerous situation of being under her husband's authority and her husband's judgment and bringing her to being under God's authority and God's judgment. Instead of being judged by her husband who is suspicious, she is now being judged by the God who knows all things and judges righteously. Second, we understand that this allows the woman to be vindicated in the community. If she is, in fact, innocent, then this gives her proof that the, that the suspicion is illegitimate and allows her full restoration back into the community. So it takes care of her in that respect. And third, even if the woman is found to be guilty, she does not receive in this law the death penalty. She receives a curse, not a pleasant curse, but her life is spared. So as we think about this law in the context of the society it is addressing, I see that, that I, I believe that the woman is actually being given protections that are quite unique and, and, and should be appreciated. As we get into this passage, we need to ask ourselves, how do we, how do we interpret this stuff being in the New Testament? Well, we could obviously deal with it in the very narrow sense of marriage and, and adultery, but I think it is more important for us to remember that marriage in the Bible is often meant to image God's relationship with his people. God is the husband and the church is the bride. Christ uh, calls us, we are his bride. And so often marriage has been given to us to make us think of the relationship that we have with God. Just as the Bible talks about physical adultery, it also talks about spiritual adultery, which is unfaithfulness to God and to his commandments. So as we look at this passage, I want us to think more broadly about our relationship with God as our, as our husband in a sense. Think of what God tells us of himself in Ezekiel chapter 16. He says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood with you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whoring on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Here we find that the covenant people, when they are unfaithful to God, become like an adulteress. And I think as we go through this passage, the question that we really need to ask is this. Does God have reason to be suspicious that we have been unfaithful to him? If he searches us, what secret sins might he find? As we look at this passage, it is a very long passage, and I want to briefly summarize it so we know what's going on. At the very beginning, there is a dis domestic dispute. The husband is suspicious, though there is no evidence that his wife has been unfaithful. And there are two possibilities that the text recognizes. One, that the woman has sinned in secret. And two, that the husband is jealous, but there is no sin. And so to resolve what happened, what is the real truth, the man is to bring his wife 
to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, and there the priest prepares a solution of holy water, and the woman is to take basically a vow, that if she is guilty, she will accept the punishment of the water, but if she is innocent, nothing will happen. And the water she drinks uh, is, is water that, that, that images judgment, and if she is guilty, the water will bring about a curse upon her, but if she is innocent, then she will be shown to be innocent. That is basically how the law works. But we're going to work through it piece by piece. I've broken it into four basic scenes. And we are going to see the four scenes of judgment uh, that await the person with secret sins. So as we go through this passage, let's look at that very first scene. The suspicion of secret sins. And here we're, we're focusing on verses 11 through 15. The situation is a real problem. What does a, what does a people of God do that must be holy with the possibility that secret sins have occurred? Secret sins can still bring the community under punishment. Imagine, on a more practical level, as this group of people are about to go on a military mission. If this man is suspicious of his wife having committed adultery, then he is also suspicious of somebody else in the ranks of battle. And will his commitment and his ability to fight the war with a single-mindedness be undeterred? Or will he perhaps wonder, oh, maybe it was Roger, maybe it was... Uh, Hosea, Jebediah, whatever, they all had those old long names. Uh, but but the, the question of unfaithfulness and suspicion has the ability to just splinter the entire mission. And so the dealing with secret sins is so important. We need to remember that, that the law treats the situation on two conditions, on, on two cases. One, if there is guilt, but it's, uh, uh, it's undetectable. And two, if there's only suspicion, but no guilt. So as we go into this, the woman is either guilty or not guilty. That decision is not yet made. My question, though, as we think about this, is can this dispute be resolved between the husband and the wife? Can this suspicion be, be taken away, or can this guilt be proven, given what we know? Absolutely not. And what, what is, is the situation? Is it, a, is it a safe situation or is it a dangerous situation to leave this unaddressed? It's a very dangerous situation. Uh, the idea that, that a, a husband is no longer trusting his wife, a, a husband thinking that there is adultery, is a very dangerous situation and one that needs to be resolved for harmony in that household and harmony in the community to be restored. Now, I... I think that it is probably appropriate that I do some defending of the man in this passage because I think it's easy for us to kind of cast the man in, in the bad light given the fact that it's a, a very terrible thing to imagine as a woman to go through this. But we have to look at this and we have to say this man is jealous for his wife's covenantal faithfulness. Is that something that is good or is that something that is bad? I, I, I believe that a man should desire his complete, the complete love of his wife. He should, if he doesn't care if his wife is faithful or not, does he truly love her? Does he truly uh, think highly of her? If there is apathy about her commitment to him, then his love is not very zealous. You see, I think that, that uh, what is at heart here is a man who wants to protect his marriage, who wants to protect the purity of his wife. And he has been uh, given suspicion for one reason or another. I don't necessarily know why. 
But we have to uh, at least respect that the man is trying to protect his marriage from a very real threat. We need to recognize that this jealousy is not a petty jealousy. It is a, it is a jealousy that is about uh, preservation. And we need to recognize that if the man in this passage is really uh, following this law, that he is seeking to be obedient. He is seeking to be submitted to uh, the law of God. Otherwise, he would take the situation into his own hands. So I think we need to be careful about judging this man. This man uh, is here because he is wanting uh, to get clarity on his marriage. So they have to go to the tabernacle. They take the situation out of their house. They go to the tabernacle to decide the case. And I think there's a good principle there for us. This law teaches us to seek justice from the Lord, not ourselves. There are many situations in our life where we want to take justice into our own hands, where we want vengeance for a wrong done to us. But here, the faithful thing to do is to take something that you, you have no authority, no ability to pass judgment on and relinquish that to God's justice and to trust that God knows what is right and will do what is right. So I think the man's actions of bringing his wife to the tabernacle to have the, 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 the one true God who knows all things and can judge impartially, make the decision, is a principle for us. But I want us to look at this deeper. I don't want us just to think about a man and a woman back in the ancient Near East. I want us to think about our relationship with God. God is like a husband to his people. And our God announces himself time and time again that he is jealous for us. He is a jealous God. Consider, um, let me get my, my right page here. Um, sorry. Uh, consider what, what we are told in Exodus chapter 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Our God is jealous for us to be covenantally faithful to, uh, to him. He doesn't want us to go astray with other gods. He doesn't want us to go astray by disobedience. He wants our best, which is to be covenantally faithful to him. And that is why he is jealous, because anything that we would go after, anything that we would pursue that is not God is inferior and is the way of sin, is the way of going astray. And so God's jealousy, just like a husband's jealousy, is to protect and to keep everything uh, working as it should be. And so God is a jealous God, and God is our husband. My question as we think about this text for ourselves is, have we responded to his love and faithfulness, or are we arousing his jealousy? Have we responded with faithfulness to him? Are we walking according to, to his will and to his word? Or are we arousing his jealousy through acts of secret disobedience? Are we going astray in our heart, in our thoughts, in the, in the lives that we lead when we are not joined here? Consider the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments summarize what God believes faithfulness to him includes. Is God number one every single day of your life? Is God's name holy and never taken in vain upon your lips from, uh, throughout, the year, throughout the day, throughout the week? Do we, uh, do we honor our, our father and our, and our, and our um, mother? Have we, have we taken, have we lied, have we coveted? We need to think about those even in the terms that Jesus gives us. 
It's not just adultery of a physical act, it's, it's of the eyes. It's not just murder as a physical act, it's a desire for anger at somebody. Have, has our heart been covenantally faithful to our Lord? If he searches us, will he find that we have been obedient or will his jealousy be aroused? As we look at the second scene, there is the preparation for trial. The woman is now brought in front of the tabernacle, and this, uh, the priest prepares this drink, which is made of holy water and dust from the tabernacle. And the idea is that this is a holy drink. The dust of the tabernacle is considered holy. Just think of the image of Moses meeting God at the burning bush. What does God say? He says, remove your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. The tabernacle's ground is holy space, and so the dust, the, the dust from the ground and the water is a mixture that represents holiness. Now, the mixture itself is not harmful. You can go and drink water and dirt. It doesn't taste all that good, but it's not going to cause any ill effects to you. The point is that the water represents the holiness of God because it comes from God's holy, sacred space. Okay? And I think that there is a, a, a very apt image that this uh, water presents for us because the woman is going to drink this water, which is holy. And the idea is that that water is going to go into her body. It's going to go all throughout it. It is going to search her inward parts. And if that holy water comes across what is impure and what is sinful, then that holiness is going to react like the fire in the kerosene. And it is going to bring out judgment. That is the image. That this water, this holiness is searching her. And it gives us a great picture of how God's judgment searches us. We are told in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. As the water shows us God's searching, that is just a reminder that God sees every secret thing about you. There are no secret sins from God's perspective. And so this water is, is there to image the idea of, of holiness searching out unholiness. If the woman is guilty, then that will be a violent reaction which will bring a curse. But the, woman, the, the priest reminds her, if you are innocent, there will be no ill effects because the holiness only reacts to the presence of sin. If there is no sin in this woman, then there is no reason to be afraid. However, if she is hiding a secret sin, then when that holiness comes in the presence of it, it will bring a curse upon her. And the curse that is described is a curse that, that talks about her basically becoming barren. It will essentially make her unable to have children and will make her known amongst the community as an adulteress. So it's not a good thing. We don't want that curse. But if, if there is no sin in her, she will be spared. Hmm. But what is the deeper reality as we, as we think about this is in our covenantal relationship? Let me ask you, is there a cup that we also drink? Do we drink a cup? What cup do we drink? Do we drink uh, the cup and do we eat the bread? And that is a, a beautiful sacrament that God has given us to remind us of what Jesus has done for us and to assure us of our faith. But it is also a cup that if it is taken with, with sin and without repentance in our heart can become a cup of judgment. I think it is worth hearing the words of Paul, 
who tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You see, the, the, the gift of communion is a gift of God's presence with us. It is just like God being in the camp. But if we come to communion storing secret sins in our heart, storing unrepentant uh, life in us, when we come, we are not here receiving a blessing from God. We are receiving evidence that we are outside and that we are risking judgment. The, 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 the communion table calls us to examine ourselves that we do not take it in an unworthy manner. Every time that we come not searching ourselves and confessing our sins and seeking again to renew our faith in Christ, we are risking drinking judgment, just like the woman stands uh, at that very situation. Make no mistake, Secret sins will not remain secret. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5.24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. The world wants to teach you you can hide your sins, but with a holy God, an all-knowing God, your sins will come to light. They will come to judgment. And so we cannot allow ourselves to stand uh, before a holy God with secret sins. But let's move on to scene three. The examination comes for these secret sins. At this point, the priest now gives the woman the bitter drink, and she drinks it. Again, this water searches her for sin. It, it goes through her, and if the woman is guilty, imagine what she has to expect. Imagine what she has to wait for. She knows she is guilty. That holy water is going to find it out. And if we were to drink that cup as God's bride, what would happen to us? Would we be found not guilty, or would secret sin be found in us? Would the sin of unfaithfulness arise? Let's think about this more deeply. For this woman, there is no way out. The woman must go through this herself. She has to drink the cup. But imagine if just for a moment that the priest gently pushed her aside, stood in her place, and drank the water for her. What would that mean? What would that look like? Imagine if this woman, at the moment that she is recognizing that her secret sin is going to be exposed and she is going to receive the curse, instead the priest takes the cup back, having all the curse in it, and drinks it for her. How might that woman react to that? What an amazing display. What a surprise. This priest taking the place of this woman. And this is what Jesus, our high priest, does for our spiritual adultery. Consider in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, he said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Christ came to this world knowing there was a cup of judgment. That cup of judgment was filled with our sins and our unfaithfulness. 
He came knowing that that cup and all its disgustingness was there for him to drink. And he went to drink it for you. He stood in our place. He took upon himself our sins as he suffered on the cross. He took on the appearance of guilt as people yelled at him, if you really are the Savior, save yourself and get down from that cross. His hanging on that cross made him appear guilty. He endured the curse and the shame and the wrath that our sin should have received on our own heads. But the priest, our high priest, took God's judgment in our place. Now let's look at scene four. At this point, the verdict comes. The verdict for secret sins. And there are two possible outcomes for the woman. If, in fact, she is not guilty, then she is restored to her husband and restored to her community, and there is no one who can charge her with adultery because she has been faithful and proven so. But if she is guilty, then she bears that terrible curse. She will become the woman known throughout the community as the reason you don't commit adultery. You know Mrs. So-and-so. You see how she looks. It's because she was unfaithful to her husband. That will be her, uh, her consequence if she is guilty. It is a terrible curse. She will pay for her sins. She will pay for her sins all her life. She bears the iniquity. Is there any hope for this guilty woman under this law? There is none. If this woman is guilty, the law is powerless to save her. All that the law can do is judge, and the law judges guilt, and the law judges uh, unrighteousness. The law is powerless to give life. All that the law can do is take life away. And so if you came to the tabernacle, and you had a secret sin in your heart, and you drank that water, and God revealed your guilt, there is no remedy. That is the situation in this law. But we, thank God, have good news that the guilty woman doesn't. Our priest has drunk the bitter water and taken the curse for us. He offers forgiveness and life to all who confess their sins and trust in him. Consider this passage from John chapter 4. This is very similar to the woman at the tabernacle. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Consider this next to the passage that we have been looking at. Jesus comes not to give bitter water, but to give living water. Jesus comes to the woman who has been an unfaithful adulterer, not to give her the bitter water of judgment, but to offer her the living water of eternal life. 
Both women are guilty of adultery. Both women are discovered as, as God searches them. Jesus knows exactly the sins of this woman. And yet he offers her, if she accepts him and trusts in him as Lord and Savior, all of that is washed away and you will have living water that will give you eternal life. What's more, Christ restores the bride. Christ restores us from all our impurity, removing every stain and blemish. I love these words from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Think again of that image in Ezekiel, how God had made Israel a beautiful bride with splendor, without blemish, and she threw it all away in her spiritual harlotry. Christ has come to remove every stain, every defilement, every secret sin, as long as we confess it, and make us pure and beautiful and splendid in God's sight. This is the better news that the gospel brings. The gospel does what the law could never do. It gives life in place of death. It gives blessing in the place of cursing. It gives holiness in the place of our sinfulness. This is the gospel. This is what we must have if we are going to have life. So as I conclude, God's people must be holy. I think that passage requires us to see that. God's people must be holy. God's fellowship depends on the congregation being purified of their sins. The success of the congregation depends on each member being holy and devoted to God. God is not going to bless a congregation with his presence if they hide sins amongst them. I do want to call this congregation to face any secret sins in your midst so that you may enjoy deeper fellowship and greater effectiveness with God. Secret sins are serious to God, and he will search them out. The cross of Christ offers a much better place for resolving the damage of secret sins than does the tabernacle. Here we also find the place that gives us the power to forgive and to heal. When secret sins are amongst us, the cross allows us to confess them and be forgiven. This, the, 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 the confession of secret sins is hard to do. But the cross calls all of us to lay that at the cross and to say, as I am forgiven, I forgive you. And so there is real remedy to secret sins that is not available in the Old Covenant because Christ has come for us. Finally, do not believe in the false gospel of this world that the, re that the remedy to sins is to hide them or to deny them that they are real or to redefine them. The one who chooses to hide their sins will be searched out by the all-seeing and all-knowing eyes of God and you will bear the guilt for your sins. The remedy to secret sins is Jesus dying on the cross for us. The cup of judgment has been filled with our sins we cannot deny this. Every single one of us has sins that we are hiding. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to drink the cup of wrath for our sins 
so that those who trust in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, which drink are you going to receive? There is the cup of bitterness, and it will be yours to drink if you do not come to the Lord and confess your secret sins and trust in him for all your righteousness. But if you do that, there is the cup of living water that will be freely given to you, that will wash away all your guilt, all your shame, all your defilement. Everything that separates you, everything that makes you unworthy is taken away in the cup of living water. It is offered for you to drink and to enjoy the fellowship of the most beautiful Savior from this day until eternity. It is yours. Don't push off the offer of receiving living water if you have not done so. Do not confuse yourself that you have living water if you want to live in the hypocrisy of secret sin. You must bring the hypocrisy of your secret sin to light and let the living water cleanse you there. I pray that today that would be a a, a new beginning for each and every one of us. Please respond to the offer of God. As Revelation tells us, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you show us as we think about it and as we dig into it, that your word from the first page to the last has something to teach us. Father, I pray that you would make us hate our hidden sins, make us hate our secret sins, make us see the lie of this world that our secret sins are nobody's business. Father, let us see that that is bankrupt and that that is bringing upon us the cup of judgment. Oh, Father, I pray that you would fill every one of our hearts with living water, that you would draw us to repentance, that you would cause us to examine ourselves, that we are living by faith. So the next week that we come and we take your cup that we take it in a worthy manner. Father, may we proclaim that Jesus Christ saves sinners, of which I am one. And Father, may we look forward to the day where we are perfectly made without blemish, made beautiful and all splendor as a bride of, of the greatest beauty to be displayed before your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, let us all be part of that great wedding. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Want a benediction? I'll give you a benediction. I got a good one. Jude does anyways. Uh, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.